morning. Can I first of all say, can we say thanks to Mike Jackson for making this wonderful video? Where is he? He's somewhere in here. Normally he sits in that vicinity. Where is he? Never. There he is. Yeah, thanks, Mike. We needed a very specific personality to pull that off, and Mike nailed it. And I had a lot of fun being with his family that night. Uh, so my name is Cameron Sprinkle. Like Steve said, I'm the, the worship pastor here at the Carmel Campus, and I'm really excited uh, to be sharing with you today. Uh, I'm currently, this year, experiencing my first Christmas season as a father, which has been super-duper special. Yeah. And um, some of you know uh, we had a baby girl in October named Scarlet Faith. And uh, Scarlet, uh, it's crazy to me that she has no concept of Christmas uh, she doesn't have any of the preconceived notions or associations that we have. It's crazy to me that she doesn't know who Frosty the Snowman is yet, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, Cousin Eddie. She has no idea who any of these people are. It's fun to me to think that I get to help shape her view of Christmas. Uh, for me, Christmas doesn't feel like Christmas without the music. Uh, you would guess that, me being a musical person. But I grew up in a family. My mom's side of the family was very musical. And uh, I remember uh, around Christmas time, my mom was in a trio with her cousin Lisa. And uh, my on the right is, or on the left is Ma'am. That's my grandma. They had the glittery outfits and the 90s hair. And they would sing, come on, ring those bells, light the Christmas tree. You know what? I think you should hear them sing. Baby boy in Bethlehem, greatest celebration of them all. Come on, ring those bells like the Christmas tree. Jesus is the King born to you and me. Come on, ring those bells, everybody say. Jesus, we remember this your birthday. <laughs> so that's what I grew up with. Uh, yeah. She's going to be in the second service. So I hope she's okay with me showing that. So I was planning on singing that little jingle for you, and then she just happened to send it to me yesterday because she knows that that's only means a lot to me. She was with, uh, Mam, happened to be with Mam and Lisa, and so they recorded that. So that's a special little treat for me and for you. Uh, so yeah, that was my mom, and my grandma used to sit at the piano and play. Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, and she was a great grandma, and and I remember having warm and fuzzy memories around that. Now today, if you ask me what my favorite Christmas music was, I'd say it's probably a two-way tie between. Uh, there's an album by Phil Wickham called Songs for Christmas. Uh, we do a lot of arrangements from that album, uh, including Silent Night, which we did as the Come On In song today. And Alyssa did an awesome job with that. I don't know if she's in here. Uh, and then the other one is that I love is uh, Sleeping at Last. This is one of my favorite bands. Uh, and this Christmas album is fantastic. Uh, there's a third album that uh, I love that maybe you wouldn't guess that I love. And that's John Denver and the Muppets. Does anybody, does anybody like love this album? Yes? Christ? Yeah? Okay, good. I was wondering if I was like... You know, the only person alive that still listened to it. Uh, I still see it, like, on the shelves at Target. And I'm like, is anybody buying that? But uh, So this, this album means a lot to me because I listened to it as a kid. And uh, anything I listened to as a kid now as an adult, like, means a lot to me. I still love listening to the Free Willy soundtrack. Remember Free Willy? And uh, <laughs> why is that funny? <laughs> I did. I love Free Willy. That movie had a big impact on me. Uh, and I still listen to the score because the score... Uh, is, uh, is actually really beautiful, and that's a violin, that's what that was. Uh, and uh, the Lion King soundtrack is still really good, and Hans Zimmer did the score for the Lion King soundtrack, and that's still really inspiring to me. So I uh, still love both of those, still love John Denver and the Muppets. Um, and so it was, it was with great pride that I got to introduce my sweet Scarlet Faye to John Denver and the Muppets. We had a, a listening, a hearing of the album the other night, and I got to hold her and for me, it was like this sentimental moment, like, wow, she's experiencing this for the first time. And after a couple of songs, Carissa was like, this music is so weird. 
hearing Kermit the Frog go, I don't know if you'll believe in Christmas. <laughs> she likes my Kermit impression, but only like in short doses. Uh, <laughs> so I said, yeah, I know it's weird, but for some reason it means a lot to me. Uh, I think that statement kind of encapsulates the tension that we're trying to talk about uh, here in the series uh, at Genesis called Christmas More or Less, where we're acknowledging that there are a lot of weird things that we've come to associate with Christmas, like, you know, the moose mug from Christmas Vacation or ugly sweaters. You know, what does that have to do with Jesus? Like, well, how do we, how do we get to this point? Um, and we're trying to ask the question, um, how can we have more of the Christmas that God wants us to have and less of the Christmas that, I don't know, Target wants us to have? <laughs> And we're acknowledging that the reality that somewhere between the birth of Christ and 2016, uh, we, be, we came to associate things. We came to, to say things like, well, it just doesn't feel like Christmas without blank, you know, whatever it is for you. Um, which is funny to me because I think if you imagine, you go all the way back to the source, to the original event, and you're in the desert, you're in the Middle East. Uh, you're standing there watching this. It probably didn't feel majestic at the time, but it was a majestic moment in the context of history. And, and uh, you're standing there looking down on baby Jesus and imagine leaning over to one of the shepherds and going, it just doesn't feel like Christmas without the snow. <laughs> you're like, what are you talking about? What's snow? Like, what you, why, is that, why would you need that to feel like Christmas? Uh, the truth is, my truth is that for me, somewhere along the way, between there and now, a frog and a pig named Kermit and Miss Piggy came to be emotionally synonymous with the birth of the savior of all mankind. <laughs> I just think it's really odd. Like when you take a step back and look at it, it's really odd. All the things that like we see, uh, you know, the moose mug and we go, oh, it must be time to celebrate Jesus. <laughs> we only do that at Christmas time. Uh, so one of our goals for the series is to be willing to assess, okay, what are these associations that are fun and good things, but are they distracting us from the best things about Christmas? And we want to be willing to assess how as individuals that we're really celebrating this Christmas. And there's a couple of reasons why we think it's important to do that. One is that uh, year after year, what we see in our culture, both inside the church and outside the church, is that people get all hyped up about Christmas, and then Christmas never quite lives up to the hype. Because Christmas is a time when subconsciously I think people begin realizing that there's something missing from their lives. Um, I think it's a time when anything that's been uh, burdening us all year gets like magnified at Christmas time. Um, loneliness feels extra lonely at Christmas time. My sister is, uh, went through a divorce this year and she's, she's having her first Christmas without her husband. And that means that the kids are going to be gone half the time too. And so that's one of those things, like, it feels worse right now. It's been bad all year. It's worse right now. Um, financial struggles weigh even more heavily on us at Christmas time. Uh, and our strained relationships with friends and family feel even more strained uh, at Christmas time, partly because we're forced to interact with them, I guess. We don't want to tell them how we really feel about them, right? Right, Mike? <laughs> he did, like, nine good takes of that one. I wish I could have shown all the takes of how he delivered that line. So anyway, these emotions start bubbling to our surface and for our soul, it's the emotional equivalent of suddenly realizing that we're super, super hungry. Uh, and when you uh, are extremely hungry, you'll eat anything. Uh, your standards drop on, on what, you'll, what you'll put in your mouth and what you'll consume. Uh, but what your body really needs is protein. And so imagine going all day with not eating anything and then you have a plate of cookies for dinner. What will happen is you'll get on a sugar high, your body will feel full, and then a few hours later you'll crash because you didn't get any actual fuel. And that has an impact on everything about you because uh, when you're tired and hungry, everything seems worse. 
And so the simple act of consuming protein can help alter your state of mind and, and help you keep things in perspective. And so this is what we do at Christmas. Our souls are, are empty, they're tired, they're hungry. And so uh, we start consuming uh, what is essentially candy for our souls. We get on a warm and fuzzy high. You might call it a, a hot chocolate and Bing Crosby high. And we have moments that temporarily feel satisfying because they feel good. And then a few weeks later, we look up and realize that the state of our soul, the state of our hearts, hasn't really changed that much. And I think that our souls were designed to reach. God created us to reach for more than what we have and more than what we are. But if we're not intentional and we're not focused about that, we'll reach for what's easy. And that's why it's so easy for us to worship things of this earth. We weren't designed to worship things of this earth. We were designed to reach past that to the heavenly and to the holy. And so as a church, if we love you, I think we'll be willing to say, candy canes are great, but are you getting any protein this holiday season? The second reason we want to assess uh, how we're doing with celebrating Christmas is because we believe that Christ deserves our very best in all things. I think it's something we can all agree on, even if you're not a Christian, you would assume that a Christian would say that, right? That Christ deserves our very best in all things. Um, And if that's true, then he most certainly deserves our very best when it comes to a month dedicated to celebrating his birth. And we believe that self-examination and accountability are critical aspects of growing in our walk with Christ and honoring God the Father. And so today we want to provide that opportunity for self-examination and accountability in the way that we're celebrating Christmas. So last week, uh, Steve taught a message that said, worship more. And today, the challenge is to spend less. Now, you might hear that and think, oh, great, the church wants to talk about my money again. Uh, But that's only partially right because we do want to talk about money today. But we want to talk about it because the Bible teaches that the way we approach and spend and think of money is indicative of the condition of our hearts. So in the medical field, uh, they have tests that they'll run to check on your heart and make sure that your heart is working properly. Uh, they'll check blood pressure. They'll check your cholesterol. Uh, they might do an EKG to check the rhythm of your heart. And each of these tests are designed to make sure that your heart is working the way it's supposed to. Well, in the spiritual world, there are tests you can run. There are things you can learn about yourself uh, that uh, you can look at to examine the condition of your heart. And so maybe something like how much time are you spending serving others? If you call yourself a Christ follower, but you're not spending any time serving other people, then that might be indicative that maybe something in your heart needs some work. Uh, Maybe how much time are you spending in prayer? If you call yourself a Christ follower, but you never talk to your creator, maybe something in your heart needs to be adjusted. I say that's not a maybe, that's a definitely. And I think that looking at how we spend our money is another great diagnostic test of how much we trust God, uh, what we're worshiping, um, what we're put investing in. And so today we want to look at how and why we're getting caught up in the cultural expectation of spending a ton of money on Christmas. We want to examine what it says about our hearts, what it says about our focus, because getting stressed out by all the gift giving is a great way to miss out on the protein that the Christmas story has to offer. So first, as a a pursuit of that protein, before we get to the practical aspects and elements of what it means to spend less, we want to read part of the Christmas story because... If uh, if spending is indicative of the condition of our hearts, we need to calibrate our hearts to God's heart. And the way that we do that is by going to his word, reading his story, seeing his values, and learning from the heroes of the Bible. So uh, today we want to talk about Joseph. Last week Steve talked about uh, Mary, the wise men, and the shepherds, and how they made countercultural decisions that led to them not missing out on Christmas. Today we want to talk about Joseph, because Joseph was someone who had every reason to walk out on Christmas. Uh, So if you have your Bibles with you, let's open them to Matthew chapter 1, 
Uh, we're going to read verse 18 through 25 to get a little bit of context. All right, so this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. <clears throat> His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name, give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and they gave the son the name Jesus. All right, so in verse 18, we see this phrase that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Uh, and in America in 2016, it's easy for us to brush over that and go, okay, they were engaged, got it. Like, what else? Uh, but as soon as we do that, we're actually watering down the story because an engagement today is a lot different than an engagement was back then. Today, it's not uncommon to hear someone broke off an engagement. Uh, but back then, it was a serious commitment. It was like a contract between two families because marriage, marriages were arranged. Um, and uh, today... Uh, the way that we ease we ease into relationships like you get to know them that little bit and then maybe you kind of make it facebook official <laughs> and uh then maybe you finally go meet the parents and then after like you've examined everything you finally okay i think i can commit to this idea this family and you get engaged and even then though it's again not that frowned upon uh, should you back out of that engagement um, but back then, uh, actually, it was, it was arranged, and so it wasn't likely that they knew each other very well at all. Um, they didn't really get uh, much say in the decision, and so they didn't, uh, and they, they rarely spent time together. Uh, if they ever did spend time together, they probably weren't alone. So uh, the condition of their uh, relationship at this point is much different than uh, the pictures you see on Facebook where, you know, the engagement pictures where they've obviously spent a lot of time together, and they're both obviously really excited about this. So at this point, Mary and Joseph had essentially uh, signed the contract and then the gap between signing the contract and kind of sealing the deal with the official uh, wedding or with the marriage. Uh, but something happened in that gap that they didn't plan on. So we see that in verse, the second half of verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Uh, so for her perspective, let's jump over to Luke's account uh, of the story. We're going to be in uh, chapter 1, verse 26 to 41. I'm going to read that for us. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, this makes me emotional. It's just a, a really incredible story. He will be called uh, the Son of the Most High. Uh, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Mary's initial response is probably the most valid question ever asked in the history of mankind. How's this going to work? How will this be then, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I want to take a, a second here to talk about the virgin birth and, and uh, how neat that is, uh, because um, you may have, some of you may have heard this before, heard Jesus referred to as the second Adam, as in referencing the very first uh, human. Uh, and this is because the Bible starts with the creation of Adam. God immaculately created Adam, apart from needing man or woman to be involved. He was immaculately conceived, and God intended for him to be pure and holy and blameless which we all know now that uh, he chose sin and that led to the fall of mankind. So that's how the Bible starts. And then the Bible restarts with the New Testament with an immaculate conception of another human. And this one was named Jesus. And he was intended to be pure and holy and blameless. And he was. He was pure and holy and blameless. And this, is, this has a, a lot of implications for us because it shows us that uh, it's possible to be human and to consistently make good decisions and to, to live the kind of life that God wants us to be. Uh, Jesus was man as God intended for man to be. And so it's really cool to me that uh, those are the only two people that were immaculately conceived. The beginning of the story and when the story started over. So aside from uh, the fact that it's an astounding miracle, uh, I think it's really neat to think of Jesus as the way that, that God kind of restarted and, and set things back on the right path again. All right, so we're going to look at Mary's response. So the angel says, uh, here's how it's going to work. Here's, here's why. Here's what he's going to be called. And so, uh, and then Mary's response to that, I think, is incredible. Um, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. So that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> to me, it feels like one of those crazy Liam Neeson movies where like, they, he makes like a call and he tells you something crazy. And then he just hangs up, and you're like, I need more information about what's about to happen. Uh, but she doesn't get any more questions. She doesn't get to say, hey, can we talk about this? Uh, she doesn't get to say, what am I supposed to tell Joseph? What am I supposed to tell my friends? And it makes me wonder, for me and for you, how good are we at letting God's word be authoritative and final in our life? How do you do when you read God's word or when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and you really hear a clear conviction from the Lord? Do you swallow your doubts and your questions and just say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be as you have said. That's hard for me, but I think Mary gives us an incredible example of that. She modeled that, that for us really well. Okay, so Mary just had this uh, life-altering experience. She handled it admirably, and now she needs a safe place because that was crazy, and she needs to talk to somebody about it. She needs somebody who will understand. So she says she hurried off to her relative Elizabeth's house. Uh, Elizabeth was pregnant, and like Mary, she'd also had an angel come to her to announce her pregnancy. So this is somebody that's going to kind of relate to what Mary's going through. 
And here we see the value of having and being a safe place for someone. We see the value of community and intimacy in our relationships. It says that Mary hurried, and I think that means that she knew exactly where to go. Do you know where to go when you need a safe place? Do you have a safe place? Do you have people in your life that are a safe place for you? Now, if your answer is no, I'm not really sure, uh, I just want to encourage you uh, and challenge you that a relationship like that on a crisis night it has to be put in place before the crisis comes, right? And it takes consistency and intentionality, and it doesn't happen overnight. And we see a lot of people come and go uh, through the seats and through the cafe on Sunday morning, and I know that every single one of us is aching for a relationship this valuable, for a place to go uh, when we need a safe place. And I want that for every single one of you, every single one of us. And that will only happen if at some point you stick your hand out and you say, Hi, my name is... You've got to make the effort to make these connections. And it's going to be awkward. And you're going to find out, I actually uh, don't think I have anything in common with this guy. <laughs> but it's worth the trouble to push through those barriers and develop relationships so that you can be a safe place for others and they can be a safe place for you. So let's go back to uh, Matthew 1. Let's try to imagine what this news must have meant to Joseph. Uh, because he must have been disappointed or embarrassed, devastated. He could have been angry. Because how could he possibly understand this unprecedented event. It said that uh, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, in verse 19, uh, he did not want, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Because in this culture, what everyone assumed Mary did, it looked like she cheated on him. What everyone assumed she did was an unforgivable sin. And so uh, culturally, he had every right to leave her. But it says he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Because he didn't want to embarrass her. Uh, So let's give him credit for doing one thing right. He restrained his anger and he didn't overreact. He did what he thought was best for everyone. Uh, But then look at how the Lord intervened once again. In verse uh, 20. It says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. And then verse 24, we see his response. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. They gave the son the name Jesus. You know, it's possible that we get so uh, familiar with the story that that we don't even really consider how incredible it was that Joseph decided to go ahead and, and obey and take Mary as his wife. His decision to take her in as his wife was insanely countercultural, because his friends and family probably thought he was crazy. He was probably shamed. He was probably condemned. And now we look back on him, and, and we admire him, and we say this is a, a man and a model to be respected. But at the time, he was likely ridiculed. And keep in mind everything we said earlier. He probably didn't have that much of a relationship with Mary at this point. So his decision was more than likely just based on uh, his integrity, more than it was based on his emotional connection to her. But here's the point, the point of the story, and I don't, want, I don't want to miss this, is that because he was willing to live counterculturally, he didn't miss that first Christmas. He could have walked away, and no one would have blamed him, but he would have missed out on the birth of the Savior. And I was thinking about this, it's kind of like on Back to the Future, when the parents like start to like not end up together, and it changes the photos. Uh, if you would imagine that Joseph had walked away, like all the nativity sets, like Joseph would like disappear, and... <laughs> We'd always remember Mary as a single mom. 
But Joseph is in the nativity set because he was there, because he chose to be countercultural. And because of that, he got to experience the birth, you know, arguably the, the greatest moment for mankind, probably tied with the death and resurrection. He got to be there in a way that only a handful of people were there. There's only a handful of people in your nativity set because only a few people actually experienced the birth of Christ. And he got to be there because he chose to be countercultural. And his story challenges us to make sure that we don't miss Christmas either. So we're asking the question, what would it mean for us to take a new approach to Christmas, uh, even make some conscious choices that others might see as countercultural? You know, this idea of being countercultural is something that I get excited about. It's easy for me to talk about because since eighth grade, I've been really into the idea of going against the grain. In eighth grade, I was really into a band called Sugar Ray. You remember them? <laughs> this is Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray. Remember that one? I just want to fly. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'm the only one that listened to that song. I don't know. Either that or I'm not as good a singer as I thought I was. Uh, so I really like Sugar Ray. Uh, I really wanted that hair. And I went for it, and I think we nailed it. Uh, my mom was gracious. She got the stuff and did the frosted tips for me. And, uh, yeah, so that, uh, I had never been, this was about, uh, yeah, eighth grade. Um, I had never been one of the cool kids in elementary school and middle school. Uh, but this cool hair got me cool kid status in eighth grade. And all of a sudden, the popular kids were nice to me. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, having been somebody who was a little bit of an outcast all that time. Uh, it was a lot of fun until the day that uh, we had to update us. We had, I think, a couple successful updates where we refrosted after it grew out or grew dull or whatever. But then there came a day where we screwed it up. <laughs> and we, uh, that's not, yeah, this is just another picture of, so you can see the ends are blonde and the, the roots are dark. That was the look that I was going for. Well, one day we, uh, we accidentally bleached all of it, like all the way to my scalp. And so like my hair turned like white. And so it looked like Billy Idol, <laughs> which was not the look I was going for. And uh, so then we had to buzz it off. And then we, there you could still see the blonde. And so then we had to dye my hair back brown. So I went from one day looking like Mark McGrath to the next day looking like Eleven from Stranger Things. <laughs> and uh, people, the cool kids literally treated me different. Like when I came to school and my hair was different. Like all of a sudden I wasn't worthy of their kindness or whatever. Uh, and so um, that was the day and the moment where I decided, Boop, I'm not playing this game anymore. Uh, and so I started growing my hair out. I decided I'm not going to do things for other people. Uh, I'm actually going to do the opposite of whatever they think is cool. So I started growing my hair out, started playing the guitar, quit the basketball team because coach said I'd have to cut my hair. And I said, you just cost yourself your 12th man. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very good, so I didn't have a lot of leverage. Uh, <laughs> I played hard, though. Um, and so uh, I began this crusade of counterculturalism, uh, which was probably reached its pinnacle on the first day of class my senior year. Because the first day of school, you have to make a great impression. You got your brand new outfit, trying to set yourself apart. And I thought, what would be the opposite of that? The opposite of that would be wearing an old shirt that everybody has. So this is what I wore my senior year of high school. Go to the, do you have the PE shirt? Is that the one picture I, did, I forgot to put in there? Ah, poop. Well, it's on my Facebook page if you want to see it. Uh, I wore my PE shirt uh, on the first day of school. And so it says Northwestern PE, and it says, you know, I've got, like, my, my name, like, sprinkle, like, written across the top. So we all had a PE shirt. I thought, that's the shirt I want to wear because I want to make the point that uh, you don't have to put your best foot forward on, on the first day of school in order to be valuable. 
And so that was in my 17-year-old mind. That was how I was going to change the world and impact people's hearts. Luckily, the Lord got me onto a path where I had a more effective way of doing that, I guess. Uh, so the answer may not always be wearing your PE shirt to make a social statement, but I do think that as Christ followers, we're called to be countercultural. Uh, we're called to engage with culture, strategically embrace and leverage certain aspects of our culture. Uh, but there are a lot of ways that we can just kind of get swept out with the tide uh, with culture. And so uh, just like Joseph, we've got a lot of expectations that were set upon us. Uh, there are a lot of things that we could take away from Joseph's example of being countercultural. Um, what today, we want, in week two, we want to talk specifically about what it means to spend in a manner that is countercultural. Because again, our money and the way that we approach it is indicative of the condition of our hearts. It can tell us a lot about who or what we worship. So uh, the truth is that Christmas is known for being the most, the most excessive holiday. Uh, companies bank on that fact. And Black Friday is actually so named because uh, for companies that are in the red all year, meaning that they're not making profit, uh, at Black Friday, people go out and shop and they spend so much money that companies get into the black where they're actually profitable again. And so they're banking on that. In 2015, the average American family planned to spend $882 on Christmas, and chances are that'll exceed $900 this year. And you ever stop and ask yourself, why? Why do we spend so much? Why do we have so much anxiety about finding that perfect gift? We agonize over questions like, do I get them something I need, they need, or do I get them something they want? Do I get them the essential oils or the non-essential oils? <laughs> I was excited about that one. <laughs> I love essential oil jokes. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, why do we feel like we have to get each other more than one gift? Like one gift is enough for our birthdays. And it's not even our birthday. It's somebody else's birthday. Is it possible that we spend enough, we spend so much in order to try to generate uh, happiness that would otherwise be difficult to generate? Is it possible that we buy gifts to cover up pain or strain in our relationships that maybe we don't know how to fix things, but we do know how to buy a $25 gift card? It's so easy to get caught up in this consumption and consumerism at Christmas. And when we do, we miss out on uh, seeing what Christmas really means for us. We miss out on the protein that our souls need the most. We cover it up with all these other things that, we, that are easier. And we forget that this sweet, precious, eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus grew into a man who said in Luke twelve fifteen, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, isn't it ironic that we uh, celebrate the guy that said that by spending a ton of money on stuff that we don't need? We get so caught up in celebrating him extravagantly that we lose sight of his call to live intentionally. And spending in gifts shouldn't be the story. Like for, for our culture and for everything you see on TV, the, the story of Christmas is buy stuff, buy stuff, buy stuff. But peace, hope, and love are what every soul is really craving at Christmas time. And that only comes from Jesus Christ. So does that mean that if you're a Christian that you can't buy gifts anymore and that, we're, that you're bad if you buy gifts or you're bad if you buy something fun or something somebody does? Of course not. But our assertion today is that we can still spend in a way that honors God and honors the people that, that he cares about. And so we want to close by uh, giving three practical ways to do that. And the first is spend wisely. Set limits, set a financial limit, set a budget, stick to it, whatever that means for you. <clears throat> Maybe set item limits. Jesus himself only got three things for Christmas after all. And he was, you know, the greatest person who ever lived. 
And let's be honest, only one of those gifts was cool. <laughs> the one idea that's growing in popularity is uh, the idea of a want, a need, a wear, and a read. That uh, you get one thing they want, one thing they need, one thing they can wear, and one thing they can read. Now you might be thinking that uh, your loved ones might be disappointed or even bitter with you for not getting you, them as many presents as they're used to or as their friends will get. But I think that that would create uh, a great opportunity for a conversation about what Christmas is really about and what kind of culture you want to have in your home. Uh, now, if you don't want to take parenting advice from somebody who's had a baby for two months, you should know she is very well behaved. <laughs> so I know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> My challenge is don't be afraid to change the culture in your home. Just because you've done things a certain way for a long time doesn't mean you can't start being more intentional now. Uh, point number two, uh, the second way that we can uh, honor God in our spending is to spend thoughtfully. Uh, this doesn't occur to most people, but for some people, a physical gift actually isn't the best way to tell them that you love them. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the five love languages. Uh, gift giving is only one of the five love languages. Um, the, the other four are acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, and physical touch. Now, we generally think of these in terms of like a marriage or a significant other, but this applies to any relationship. And if you pay attention to the people you love or ask questions, you can quickly discover what, they're, what actually makes them feel loved. So if they're a words person, I'm a words person, uh, they may be honored, more honored by a heartfelt handwritten letter about what you see in them, why what they do matters, and why you value them. That's what means a lot to me. Um, if they're an acts of service person, you could maybe, I've heard of people making me like a coupon book um, where... Uh, uh, you have maybe different acts of service that you're, that they, like an IOU that they could redeem. Maybe it's a car wash. Maybe it's, I'll run you a milkshake across town. Maybe it's something simple like unloading the dishwasher for your parents or something like that. Even though you're supposed to do that anyway, right? Look at you young people. <laughs> uh, quality time people would love to know that you intentionally set aside, aside time for them to do something that they feel will be quality time with you. Maybe it's dinner and a movie. Maybe it's a trip to the zoo. Maybe it's a weekend away somewhere. Physical touch doesn't really need that much of an explanation. Uh, but I will say, don't make that your whole gift. Like, here's a hug. Love you. Merry Christmas. Uh, <laughs> usually people who have physical touch at the love language have another love language that's right there, secondary. That's how I am. Physical touch is probably my primary love language, but I like words along with that. And then lastly, we want to challenge you to spend compassionately. Uh, we were going to call this one spend generously, but just like with our Love Your Neighbor push, we want to distinguish the difference between being generous and being compassionate. Because you can give away a fair amount of money, but if you're not mentally and emotionally engaged or attempting to connect with that person or cause, then your heart can remain unaffected by your generosity. And God wants your heart to be involved in the way that you spend your money. You know, food for souls would be a, a great place to do this, uh, a great way to spend compassionately because Genesis has a partnership with them. Uh, we're going to be sending teams, like Steve said, down to downtown Indy uh, during 2017 once a month. So maybe this Christmas you uh, donate to the food for souls drive and you sign up for uh, to be on a team to serve in 2017. You can do that on uh, genesischurch.me um, or using the app. You know, my, uh, another way to give compassionately, my brother-in-law found a neat way to do this a couple years ago. Carissa's brother, Austin, uh, handed out envelopes to each of us, and uh, I opened it, and it was a, a printout that said, a donation's been made in your name to a uh, charity, and he donated to different charities for each of us. And if I'm honest, my first thought was, you actually didn't, okay, so you didn't give me anything, all right. 
No, that's cool. No, it's great. It's great. It's great that you did that. I just, uh, and the more I thought about it, I thought, like, I don't need anything. Like, why am I disappointed? Uh, it's because we're so used to just get, 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 get. And I thought, these, this charity probably needs, you know, however much money it was he gave to them more than I needed, I don't know, another record or whatever it was he was going to buy for me. And so even if it doesn't work out, the volunteer at the place you're donating to, you can make time to pray for these organizations and these places that are relying on your generosity. You know, Christmas is, is an amazing story. It's, it's a, a great story to dissect and process. And every time you read through it, you can find something else, some other way to apply it to your life. Um, there's so many things I love about it. But one of the things I love the most about the Christmas story is that I think it's the most epic example of a God who does what he says he's going to do. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, we see many prophecies about Christ. We see promises of a Messiah who will come into our brokenness and bring healing. Come into our darkness and bring light. Come into our despair and bring hope. Come into our insecurities and bring identity. Come into our sin and bring purity. Come into our isolation and bring intimacy with God. The band's going to come out and uh, we're going to sing one more song uh, here in a minute. And uh, it's about the night that everything changed for us. Uh, we hope, I hope that you'll join with them. In fact, let's just stand as we prepare to sing with them. This song is one of my favorite Christmas songs, but I don't want it just to be a warm and fuzzy moment that we enjoy. I want it to be a time when we engage with these rich lyrics and then we make this a truth that we proclaim, a truth that we celebrate in your heart. And before we sing, I want to read from one of those prophecies in Isaiah. I think this is just one of the most epic sections in the entire Bible. And I hope that uh, your soul will feel its worth as we read this scripture and as we sing this song. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is in verse 2. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as men, as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this.